If you have your Bible this morning, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We'll be in verse 35 today. As a parent, there were a lot of things that I was expecting to happen as uh, we started a family, as we began having children. I uh, expected, of course, to have to be more selfless. Uh, I had expected to deal with some pretty gross things. Uh, I expected to have less free time to pursue my own interests. But one thing that I never expected as a parent was how much Chandler would want to be just like me. I've found Chandler's shoes on my shoe rack before. Uh, he'll want to sit with me in the recliner with his feet up just like me. He'll come out into the garage and hammer on some wood with my ear coverings over his head. He calls them head speakers, uh, even though they don't put out any noise. Uh, and just, just to build like I do. Uh, but some imitations aren't a good look. Uh, most recently, he was actually imitating uh, Kelsey. It was her turn to be imitated when he found her uh, knee-high boots and on his way to bath time decided that he was going to put them on uh, which meant he was headed to the bath with boots up to uh, the bare butt that was hanging out the back. Uh, <laughs> some invitations just aren't a good look. Uh, but for the last several weeks, we've been going through a series uh, called DMs, or Direct Messages, looking at the uh, interactions or instructions that Jesus gave to his closest followers. Uh, it's our intention through this series to look at uh, Jesus' disciples, both then and now, and see uh, if we are pursuing a close personal relationship with him, what that looks like, what that looked like for them uh, and for us who have made Jesus, Jesus the center of our lives. Uh, Jesus has given several messages so far for us. Uh, he's called us to trust him. He said, trust me. He said, follow me. He said, know me. And now this morning, Jesus calls us to take it a step further. He's interacted with different people throughout the Gospels, the crowds, the religious leaders, and now uh, his disciples we look at this morning, he calls them kind of to the next step in following him as he says, imitate me. Imitate me. Look as I look. Do as I do. But as we'll come to see in Mark chapter 10 this morning, this imitation that Jesus is calling us to is an imitation that many in the world look at and say, mm, that's just not a good look. Let's kind of set the stage for this a little bit in Mark chapter 10 this morning. Jesus has been, throughout the Gospels up to this point, continuing to head and steadily make his way toward Jerusalem. The disciples think that he's going to Jerusalem to establish a kingdom. And in one sense, they are correct. They have the right aim, uh, though they have the wrong means. He is going to establish a kingdom, but not the kind of kingdom they expect. They think that he's going to establish this kingdom through military rule. And so Jesus makes clear, as they're headed toward Jerusalem, uh, makes clear just exactly, again, the nature of his kingdom by predicting his death for the third time before them. For our passage this morning, he will say that his kingdom, again, does not come with the sword, but rather with the cross. And the disciples, though, we know, as we saw last week, though, have missed this still so far. And to be fair, Jesus has kind of seemed practically invincible up to this point. I mean, how could they expect anything different? He's been like Superman. I mean, no bullet has seemed to have been able to hurt him. The plots of the Jews or storms on the sea, no demonic force has been able to overpower him or trip him up. And in some ways, by doing these things, Jesus has affirmed their expectations. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, he says, I tell you the truth, at the renewal of all things, the Son of Man who sit, will sit on his glorious throne... And you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so with all of this in mind, Jesus continued 
uh, nature of, of heading toward Jerusalem where he will be crucified, but where they think he will set up a physical kingdom where he has been able to uh, power through all of these different things that have opposed him. With all of this background in mind, James and John come to Jesus with a request this morning. Matthew chapter 10, verse 35 says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. James and John come to Jesus with this pronouncement in mind that the twelve disciples will sit on thrones around Jesus when he comes into his glorious reign. And they say, we want the prime spots. And this isn't a new issue. This isn't the first time the disciples have had this discussion. In fact, just one chapter before, in Mark chapter 9, it says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, Jesus asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Over and over again throughout the Gospels, we see this argument pop up. Even the Last Supper, the night before Jesus is, the night Jesus is betrayed and before his death, James and John will be, and the other disciples as well, will be arguing about who holds the most prominence within Jesus' inner circle. I mean, they've just heard this promise that the twelve will sit on twelve thrones along with Jesus, and so they think their chances have got to be pretty good. Especially for James and John, you know, they were among the first disciples that were called. They heard they hold the majority vote in the inner three. I mean, they seem at this point like shoe-ins for such a prominent position. They actually even have a, a greater connection than just those, though. Matthew, in his retelling of this story, tells us that James and John uh, don't come to Jesus alone, but actually bring along with them uh, their mother. They don't want to look like total jerks, and so they do what any guy does in this circumstance. When he doesn't want to do something himself, he asks good old mom to do it. But Jesus is actually uh, not just a rabbi to these men. He's a relative. And we see that Mary's sister is James and John's mother, which makes her Jesus' aunt. James and John are actually Jesus' cousins. There's a little family tree info for you this morning, free of charge. Uh, but we're not just taking a climb into a family tree. We see that Jesus' come, Jesus' aunt comes to exercise this family member privilege. I mean, what mother wouldn't want the best for her sons? I can kind of imagine James and John kind of in the background seemingly find something interesting in the dirt all of a sudden as they've tasked their mom to put this request before Jesus. But Jesus, of course, sees right through the ruse. I think that's why Mark cuts her out of the story altogether. It might have been Salome, the mother, asking the question, but they all knew who was really the driving force behind it. And in some respect, I think we have to kind of admire James and John for even asking this question. I mean, it shows that they trust that Jesus will be a king, that he will bring about a kingdom, that they have spiritual ambition, that they want to follow him and be closely connected with him. The problem is that Jesus has demonstrated time and time again that his kingdom is different than the one they expect. They have failed to realize that his kingship is inextricably linked to suffering. In fact, the next time that we hear this phrase, one on the right and one on the left in Mark's gospel, is used to describe those who are crucified along with him. Their claim to want to follow Jesus, to be on the right and the left, might just be more than they bargained for. And so Jesus responds in verse 38. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. 
Jesus said to them, You will drink the cup I drink and be baptism, baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus kind of tunes in to this fact again, reorients their focus that they don't really understand the true nature of his kingdom. Just as we looked at last week when Jesus called them to know me, to understand why I've come, they've misunderstood once more the difference between an earthly kingdom and the kingdom that Jesus came to bring about. He says that the two that you're comparing are, are apples and oranges. He says, can you, can you drink of my cup? Can you be immersed in my suffering? Can you share in my fate? And just like that old song, they say, anything you can do, we can do better. But by this cup, we know that Jesus means that he's sharing ultimately, that they'd be sharing ultimately in his suffering and his death. He speaks of the cup of God's wrath against sin, but they would have had a different idea when it came to cup. They would have been thinking more in line with the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 16:5, where it says, Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. You have made my lot secure. Psalm 116, verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. For them, a cup was a symbol of strength and stability, of provision and prominence. And so they say, of course, Jesus, we we can handle all of the blessings. We can handle all that you have to pour into our lives. Anything you can do, we can do for you. And what Jesus says next, though, is kind of funny to me. He says, "You you will, in fact, drink from my cup. You will endure the hardships and the suffering, but I still can't give you the seats. It seems like he's pulling a fast one. He says, you will pay the price, but you're still not getting the goods. It's like the husband that says, honey, would you like a bowl of ice cream? And she says, sure. And he says, okay, get one for me while you're up getting yours too. It's just this idea of, you know, you, you do the work, but you're not getting the, the perks. And sure enough, what Jesus will tell them will come to fruition. Of the 12 disciples, we see that James will be the first martyr. In the book of Acts, he'll be put to death for his testimony about Jesus. And John will be the last exiled to the island of Patmos as an old man. And it's easy to to pick on these two, but really this isn't just a James and John issue. I'm pretty sure that if we were there too, you and I would have the same reaction as the rest of the disciples. It says when they heard James and John ask this, they grew indignant. And we like to assume that their indignation is, you know, they're finally starting to get it. They're showing some decency in the face of the suffering that Jesus will experience. But rather, I think their indignation is more caused by the fact that James and John really kind of beat them to the punch. It says Jesus called them all together. So obviously, in the face of this indignation, it was big enough that Jesus knew that he had to draw their attention back to him and on why he came. Their indignation is not so much of a, how dare they? But why didn't we think of that? And you would think that after three years with Jesus, his disciples would know better. But even after 2,000 years, we still often miss the message. Jesus says in verse 42, it says, He called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says before we have this conversation of grabbing for power, don't, don't concern yourselves with that until you understand where power truly comes from in my kingdom. Naturally, when people like the disciples thought of power, they would have thought of the Gentile rulers around them. They would have thought of the Romans and people like Herod. And they might not have liked them, but there was no denying that they had prominence and position. But Jesus says, don't, don't be like those guys. Don't be like those who impose their power on people. Jesus is warning them against the kind of people in their world and ours who are filled with selfish ambition and overconfidence and arrogance and who will trample on anyone and everyone and go to get wherever they need to in order to fulfill their desires. In fact, we see a couple of examples uh, of these Gentile rulers in, in throughout the Gospels, particularly in Mark. In Mark chapter 6, we're told of a conflict between John the Baptist and Herod, who had claimed for himself the title king of the Jews. Herod had stolen his brother's wife, Herodias, uh, who was also uh, his niece. It's kind of like the first episode of Jerry Springer, ancient edition. And, and so John the Baptist says, dude, you know, that's, that's not okay. You can't do that. And then matters get worse when Herod's stepdaughter performs a dance for him at a party he's throwing. You can only imagine what kind of dance it is. I promise you it's not the polka. And he is so impressed with her skills that he promises her up to half of his kingdom. But instead, given advice by her mother, chooses John the Baptist's head on a platter. It says the king was so greatly distressed, but because of his oath and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. We know that Herod at least respected John as a prophet. He didn't want to kill him, but he also wanted to save face. He didn't want to lose out on his promise made before his dinner guests, and so he caved to the whims of a little girl. Or we think also of the other Gentile ruler we see in the gospel. We think of Pilate, who was so afraid to lose his power that he would condemn an innocent man to die, that he would literally wash his hands of any decision-making because of his perilous political position. And we look at these Gentile rulers, and we see one cave to a little girl, and one cave to an angry mob. We see them try to save face, to, to cling to their power, and as a result, make bad decisions because of it. And, and it's even the same in our own day. Uh, November 6th, Election Day is coming up, and if you're anything like me, you have received pile upon pile of all of these election flyers on why this person is the worst, or this person is the best, or why we should vote for them, or why we shouldn't vote for them. And they're incumbents, or they're coming into office for the first time, and before it's all done, it all falls apart. It can come crumbling down in a house of cards as they lobby and they play to special interests and they try to cling to power without ever having really any prominence or position. And so Jesus shows us that those who consider themselves leaders really aren't leaders at all, but really just crave the appearance of leadership. Jesus tells us what it takes to be truly great with a radical statement that only Jesus could say. He says, you want to be great? Then become a servant. 
You want to have power, then become a slave. Because Jesus says, in my kingdom, greatness is not measured in status, but rather in service. You see, the prevailing worldview of nearly every culture is to climb as high as you can on the social ladder, and the only place you'll ever really be happy is all the way at the top. But Jesus turns that on its head and says, greatness is measured in service, not status. Slaves and and servants were the working class, the blue collar of the day. In a society that despised manual labor, they were the ones who would get their hands dirty. They were the ones doing the jobs like our Pakistani brothers and sisters. Most of them owned so little that many didn't even own themselves. And these are the people that Jesus says that we must be like. Because these are the people that he was like. He says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man came to lay down his life for others. We see Jesus serve in such a way in John chapter 13. The night before his death, when it would have been entirely appropriate for Jesus to be grasping for glory, instead he takes off his outer robe, wraps himself in a towel, and washes his disciples' feet. John 13, too, says the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I find verse 3 particularly interesting. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Through his ministry in that moment, Jesus held the power of everything and creation under his hand. And what he chose to do with that power was wrap a towel around his waist and take upon himself the job that was reserved for the lowest of the low. A Gentile slave, a non-Jewish slave, the lowest in the house was the one tasked with this job. And and we get that. Feet are are smelly and feet are hairy and calloused and and crusty and and cracked. And that's just the ladies' feet out there. I don't even get me started on the men's feet. Uh, we, We just... This, this, is, this is scrubbing toilets. This is scooping the dog poop out of the backyard. This is the job that no one wanted to do. Certainly, it's not something you would expect the MC of a banquet to do, let alone the God of the universe. But Jesus wanted to demonstrate that true leadership is in service. True power is in selflessness. Verse 12 says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. You will be blessed. If you do them. Anytime we approach the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet, I think there's uh, kind of an automatic temptation, at least I know there is for me. Because it would have been fairly easy to uh, trot out several basins and pitchers this morning and, and towels and, and wash each other's feet as an example of service to each other. 
And that's not a bad thing to do. I've been a part of foot washing ceremonies and I understand the humility that comes about it in both the washer and the person having their feet washed. But for the most part, our feet are pretty clean. You know, they're nicely pedicured and shielded by socks and shoes. And while feet aren't really many people's favorite part of the body, washing someone's feet today really isn't a huge inconvenience. I mean, we would be tempted to wash each other's feet, endure our 30 seconds of awkwardness, and then go home feeling like we've done our bit for service. But that's not really the point that Jesus is making. What Jesus is doing in this passage for his disciples is a service so demeaning and so personal, so humbling, that there's really nothing that they can do to pay him back. There's nothing they can do to to square up with him, him having done this. You see, Jesus' position of power was something that he could never lose because he didn't claw his way to the top, but rather contented himself at the bottom. Jesus was never pressured into a place he didn't want to be or pushed into an action he didn't want to do like Herod or Pilate because Jesus chose service, not status, as the means of advancing his kingdom. And so with that in mind, this week I want to encourage you in an effort to imitate Jesus, in an effort to display his kingdom power, to do something for someone this week that they can't pay back. Maybe it's something you do for your spouse or your kids, a sacrifice that you make to serve them. Or maybe you buy lunch for a coworker that you don't really like or get along with. Maybe you rake leaves for a neighbor that's routinely disrespectful. Maybe you watch a young family's kids so they can have time to strengthen their relationship on a date night, you know, build better families. Many of you know that before coming to uh, Countryside five years ago, I spent a year of an internship uh, at Christ Church of Orinogo uh, down in Orinogo, Missouri. And some of you might be familiar with Christ Church. It's a really large church, thousands and thousands of people. And the minister there, Mark Christian, is one of my good friends and mentors to this day. But I remember one Wednesday night, uh, after programming, I was there, and uh, he was roaming the halls, and people were uh, chatting and, and enjoying time with each other and fellowshipping after their lessons and everything. And uh, I remember him calling out to one little kid that was in the crowd. And I mean, just judging on appearances, you could tell this kid probably didn't have the best home life. And he called him by name and was talking to him about his life, and he realized that his shoe was untied. And so he got down on, on one knee in his nice dress slacks, and he patted his leg. And the little kid put his foot up and he tied his shoe and he went off on his way. You can't pay back someone doing that for you as a little kid. There's nothing that you can gain from that if you're seeking power as the world defines it. But I know that's the kind of leader that I aspire to be. Whatever form it takes, I want to encourage you to service because service is the greatest means that we have at our disposal to advance the kingdom. You see, this wasn't just a position that Jesus took in life, though, but also one that he took in death. Jesus didn't cling to power and life, but rather submitted himself to the Father's will and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he suffered and humiliated and was put on display as a supposed failed king. Because in the cross there is suffering. 
And in the cross, there is death. But in the cross, there is also victory because in the cross, there is exaltation and glory because we know the cross was not the final say. And so rather than imitating the ways of the world, Christ has called us to shoulder the condition of the cross and to live our lives not to be served, but to serve. In just a moment, as we always do, we're going to have uh, an invitation time. And as always, I'll be up front. Our elders will be in the back. Our response team is going to come forward, and we'd love uh, to pray with you. Maybe talk with you uh, about becoming a Christian, giving your life to Christ. Maybe pray for you to be selfless in the ways that you serve others. I know that we could all do better with that. But during this time, I also want it to be uh, an invitation, an opportunity, not just to accept a life of salvation, but really a life of service. A life that prompts us to realize that in the shadow of the cross, the commission is to serve. To serve when it's easy or to serve when it's difficult, to serve when there's no reward, to serve when it's demeaning, to serve when we want to or even when we don't want to. But above all, to serve because in the kingdom, it is our service, not our status, that constitutes our greatness. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning earnestly heeding Christ's call to imitate him. And God, we look at Jesus and we see the life that he lived as one of humility and servant leadership. That rather than cling to power or prominence or try to claw his way to the top of the social standing, Jesus adopted the position of the lowest of the low. He washed his disciples' feet. He adopted this job that, was, that anyone in that room would have walked at other than him. And in doing so, left us this example of service that can't be paid back. Of service that advances your kingdom because it shows others the love that you have for them. Ultimately, we know that was a love that led Jesus to the cross. And in the cross, we see again Jesus lower himself to this position that was far beneath what he deserved. That as the God of the universe, he took on our form and submitted himself to death so that we might have life. God, I pray that in our daily lives, we would have little opportunities and interactions to do that on a smaller scale, to show others that they are loved, that there is life in you in the ways that we serve them. God, I pray that you would Open our eyes with opportunities around us to be servants in our homes, in our churches, in our community, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, that you would open our eyes to serve as you served, to live as you lived as we seek to imitate you, to find true greatness and power in service. pray this in Jesus' name this morning. Amen.